Hey, I'm Jan. And I'm Jared. And we're both librarians at Manhattan Public Library. Welcome to the Read MHK podcast. Read MHK is a community-wide reading program aimed at building connections through books and sharing experiences with each other. Each month, we speak with a local community member, talk about books based on a theme, and offer reading suggestions. Our theme this month was inspired by Native American Heritage Month, which takes place throughout the month of November. What began in the early 1900s as an attempt to get a day of recognition became a week-long celebration in the mid-1980s and was expanded to one entire month in November in the 1990s. This is a month to broaden your perspective, celebrate the culture, and acknowledge the contributions of Indigenous and Native peoples. As librarians, we believe one of the best ways to do this is through reading books, and we've got plenty, whether you're just starting your education or wanting to dive deeper. To name just a handful, we have the poetry of Joy Harjo of the Muscogee Nation, who is the first Native American Poet Laureate of the United States, as well as the poetry and stories of Pulitzer Prize-winning Kiowa novelist N. Scott Mamaday. There is also the wide-ranging work of Luis Erdrich, a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. From children's books to adult nonfiction and fiction, she writes it all. One of her recent books, The Night Watchman, was a Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction in 2021. You can also find the work of writer, musician, and political activist Sitkala Shaw, a member of the Yankton, Dakota Sioux, born in 1876 on Sunflower e-Library and Hoopla. And lastly, we have the recent young adult book, Notable Native People, by Adrian Keene, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, who gives a brief biography accompanied by a colorful illustration of 50 indigenous leaders, dreamers, and changemakers from the past and present. Our guest today is Dr. Deborah Bolton. She directs intercultural learning and development and is faculty in geography at Kansas State University. She works in collaboration with academic and student life colleagues to advance equitable representation of historically excluded and underrepresented identities in higher education. In addition, Bolton, a National Geographic Society explorer, continues her research in displaced populations, having recently published a book chapter on the African diaspora in Southwest Kansas, and a recent article in a financial magazine focusing on historical currencies of indigenous populations. Presently, Bolton devotes her scholarly time and theory development in youth and adult cultural identity. When she's not working, Dr. Bolton likes to... And that's where I come in. Yes. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you what I like to do. I like to read. I also like to cook and bake, and I play music. I play some instruments. I like to hike and camp, and I like to do historical research and not just limited to indigenous people. I have a real passion for the history of the 13th century in Spain and King Alfonso X. That's a whole different conversation. (laughs) Very well-rounded. Yeah, yeah. I produce a two-hour show on that every year for for NPR, and it's played at different stations. Uh, It's called the Cantigas de Santa Maria. It's it's really quite fascinating. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'd love to listen to it. And the first book she remembers reading as a child is? Well, I I have a couple of very memorable books. First of all, I'll give you some background. My mother is a trained nurse, and when I was four, I used to read her nursing textbooks. So that's how I taught myself to read. But as an indigenous person going through a school system that was really mostly focused on settlers, colonial descendants, there was nothing about me 
in our textbooks. And when it was about me, it was usually a little paragraph or just something to say that when settlers arrived, they found these savage people. And so I saw myself as a savage for a long time. But when I got to fifth grade, I read the diary of Anne Frank and it just bowled me over. I just, and I read it over and over and over because I kept thinking, here she is, her community doesn't like her for who she is, and she has to hide. The whole story is about her hiding in Amsterdam and just all the secrets they had to keep and when they couldn't have the lights on. And I just felt such a connection to her. And so that was probably the book that meant the most to me as a child growing up. I went to segregated 4-H when I was young. And, you know, there were a lot of rules about indigenous people in my hometown. You know, the mascot is Indians, but, you know, we can't get them to change that. So all of that narrative around there and being able to connect with someone like Anne Frank was very powerful for me. I love that you can pull that out of a text that was completely written about something, you know, so different and that you were able to find something in there that related to you. And that's what we're trying to do with our entire series. When we read books, we see pieces of ourselves in there. And so that will give us some empathy into what their life was like. And and, and I love that analogy for you. Well, my next book that was so powerful to me, of course, every seventh grader has to read The Outside. By Essie Hinton, mm-hmm. still reading it. My grandchildren are reading it, and yes. I just like blows me away. So I could really identify, and that's where I first got my oh, I love Robert Frost. Nothing gold can stay that they used to repeat in that book. Mm-hmm. And so for middle school, that was my book, and I read it over and over. Then I got to high school and, you know, you get into your English language classes, and we had to read Great Expectations. Oh, my goodness. Nothing can be further away from my indigenous upbringing in a settler community that kind of looked down on me. So Pip, the young man there who gets, uh, you know, and then he finds out his benefactor is a prisoner and all this. But the stories and such rich writing, of course, Charles Dickens was fabulous writer, albeit a very tortured soul in many ways, but I think that's what makes a good writer sometimes. And so that stuck in my head so much so that I was an English major for my bachelor's and master's. When it was time to write my master's thesis, I wrote it on the origins and traditions of the foods in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Because what I was so taken by there is they talk about at Christmas time, mincemeat and how they made mincemeat. And I'm thinking, but I grew up with mincemeat. I'm not from Britain. I grew up with mincemeat. And then I started doing historical food research. Uh, Ray Tannehill, one of the authors that I read, she was a person who grew up in Scotland and wrote about food history. And so in that, I understood how they came to make minced meat and why my grandmother made it. Well, it was to disguise rotting meat. So as the meat was rotting, you added uh, sugar to it or honey or whatever sweetener, lots of fruits, lots of nuts, and lots of brandy. (laughs) 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 And so they kept it where it was cool, they didn't Mm -hmm. refrigerate it and they had to keep it in the cellar in a crockery pot with some sort of a cloth lid on it. And, you know, that's what they ate. And I thought, oh, so to this day, I'm just always thinking, you can make those connections no matter what. 
And how did somebody so far from each other have those? But if you looked at other food history, for example, you would see the same thing. The same thing happens with food, literature, all of these things that we do to maintain our cultural identities, and in some cases, still cultural identities, you know, there's that too. But so I know that was a long involved answer (laughs) for your simple little question, but you just struck this chord in me and that's what gives me life and excitement. (laughs) Well, you know, as librarians, we can't say that it's not simple. You know, there's so many books and they have so many different intricacies to them and everybody's different. You know, everyone has a different favorite book or a different favorite memory. Sure. So then my other author, I have to tell you one more time because, or a little bit more of that, because I get these authors and I just consume them. Chaim Podak was my other one. I can't remember if I had to read The Chosen first, but his books, which are, again, so far from me, but I could find those connections, especially in My Name is Asher Levin, The Gift of Asher Lev, because there was this young man who was expected to be a Rebbe like his father and like his father's father and all that. But he was an artist. Well, that wasn't really something that you were supposed to be as as you were studying for the rabbinical uh, procession there. That wasn't the right word. But anyway, uh, (laughs) sorry. But he was an artist, great artist. And then his books were semi-autobiographical. In May of 2003, I actually wrote to the author and asked him, if if you have anywhere that you're going to lecture, please let me know. I will travel there. This is May. He says he wrote back. He actually wrote back and he said, alas, I won't be doing this anymore. He didn't tell me why, but he had brain cancer and he died three, three months later. But I told him a little bit about myself and how, you know, you couldn't be more far away as a Hasidic Jewish person and an indigenous person somehow finding a connection. But again, it was that story about the person that was just different from the rest of the people in his family, and I could relate to that, and just different things. I mean, if you can find those stories in any books that touch you that way, there's just nothing better than reading. You could live your whole life reading. <laughs> I, think. I think as children, we do. We often start reading books when we're little. And I remember Diary of Anne Frank was one of the first ones that really drew me in and pulled me in mm. for different reasons, of sure. course. But we all have those wonderful memories that are held dear to us. And I think when your parents are readers, my father mm-hmm. was a voracious reader. And I read his National Geographic magazines monthly. When he was finished with them, I got them. So got to read them and read them and read them. And, you know, you got to learn about the whole world Mm -hmm. and how they practiced. What were their beliefs? What did they look like? All of these things that we had no idea about growing up, but it was just your mirror into the world. Exactly. And it gives you, as a kid, you maybe until you learn how to ride a bike and you get a little more freedom. Mm -hmm you're dependent on other people to take you places and go on those adventures. But with books, you can go out on the ocean or go into the jungle, go to space. It gives you that freedom to put you in control and you get to go on those adventures and you don't have to wait for someone else to take you. Right. Okay. So you kind of like almost hit the entire, all of our questions with that, but we'll still keep going. So I'm going to change this one a little bit. Can you tell us a favorite memory you have related to libraries? I know I said books and libraries, but we've talked a lot about books. What about libraries? 
Libraries. Well, I find libraries to be interesting. They have changed, of course, over the years with digital media and people wanting to be on computers. They tend to go to the library for the computers. But there was nothing more exciting to me than going into the stacks and looking at all the titles. And depending on what section you were in, what titles were you going to find? Oh, my favorite memory of a library In high school, our library had a music section. And so I could check out Handel's Messiah, directed by Sir Colin Davies of uh, the London Symphony Orchestra. I could check out Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. I could check out Schubert's De Schooner Millerin, the song cycle, The Lovely Maid of the Mill. And so that was part of my library education, because when I could listen to the music, I could also go look them up and know more about Schubert or whoever I was listening to at the time. So that multi multimedia that mm-hmm. the library offered. And you don't think about multimedia when you're going in to check out a record and then you go check out the book that tells you more about the person that wrote the music. So I think libraries have always been multimedia. So that's probably my favorite I love uh, at school and, and going to the library and checking out music and then checking out the book that went with the author or whatever. That's great. That's great. And and I, I think that's what I love about just reading different books about like, again, Anne Frank and, oh, what was this Holocaust thing? And then going back and learning more about that, grabbing another book about the history of the Holocaust where you can do that. And libraries offer so much that people kind of pigeonhole us into what are libraries for anymore? You know, I had a lady not too long ago come in and say, oh, I didn't even know that libraries were still a thing. It's like, oh my gosh, we are so much. (laughs) I think newspapers are saying that same thing. And in some way, radio is saying that same thing. I have a long history of working with National Public Radio and a a public radio station in Southwest Kansas. And I think even that is starting to go by the wayside because people They want it on-demand stuff rather than, okay, I have to wait till one o'clock this afternoon to listen to classical music or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, and libraries are becoming more community centers. And I think identifying us as the heart of the community is our next step and where we go from here on out. I think a community that uses its library as its community center will turn out communities (laughs) or support communities that are a little more progressive in thought and humanities oriented and understanding what the humanities bring to our lives. You know, we may Mm -hmm. not be rich. I mean, I'll never get rich working in radio or being a musician or something like that. But I learn those other things if I meet up with people at a library. I came here a couple of years ago to the library when you were doing some lectures on the best way to see the solar eclipse. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And, you know, so I know, okay, I know I'm not going to see the totality here. I went to Ravana, Nebraska and was in totality mm-hmm. for two minutes and 26 seconds, you know, and I, the library, I wouldn't have known that if, if this program hadn't have been offered by the library. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, libraries are everything if you just Take the time to understand, know where it is, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. If you had to be trapped in the world of a book, what book would you choose? Hmm. Wow. I've, I've been trapped in the world of many books. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if you experience this, but when you're reading a book and it's just really good and you have to put it down to go to sleep or go to work or something like that. 
but you're playing that book in your head all day long and you get to replay it. And the beautiful thing about books, like if you're reading a, a, a line and you think, oh, gosh, what a beautiful line that was. You can go back and read it again. You can go back and read it again. And, you know, those loops that you create in your head and just by reading it, I think that's the, oh, and you said, what book do I get lost in the world? I think it depends on what book I'm reading. Right now I'm reading about King Alfonso X. He was the king of Spain and he was a pluralist. He had Jewish and Muslim people in his court. He taught morality through the teachings of Virgin Mary. I'm not Catholic. It's very Catholic oriented. I'm things I've learned about in that. But he was probably one of the first multimedia people. And if you think about 13th century, I'm writing a song or a poem, but I'm also going to commission an artist to make a 3D or a 2D to illustrate. So then a troubadour takes out my stories to other people to teach them these. So look at all the multimedia that happened there. So that was one of the reasons I really liked him because, you know, multimedia is, again, a very important thing in the world of libraries today. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in other times, too, when you think about what libraries have always done for a community. So I'm lost in that world right now. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it sounds like a great place to be. <laughs> okay. Do you judge a book by its cover? I think I do. I, mm-hmm. I tend to look for, you know, you read the inside and you go, okay, is this a book I'm going to continue to read? So I think I do. I don't Mm -hmm. know who else doesn't, but I also look for the author too. I might look, Mm -hmm. if I know an author, I'll judge the book by uh, the author and the sound of it. I think one of the things as we talk, since we're talking about Indigenous People Heritage Month, I've been asked quite a bit to be on panels and just different instances where I can talk about Indigenous life. And you know, there are 572 so-called civilized tribes in the U.S. and civilized only because the nation called them that, but the people that are, quote, civilized are the indigenous that have had a treaty with the Congress before. Okay. And some communities, indigenous communities, haven't had a treaty, so they're not listed as one of the 570-some federally recognized tribes. But when I look at books... I'm going to give you an example of books written by indigenous people. You mentioned Adrienne Keene, notable native people. Well, one of the people that she talks about is Dene astrophysicist Aaron Yazzie, who works for NASA. And just about last spring, we brought him to talk to our students at Kansas State University, which was kind of cool. It was sponsored by the Multicultural Engineering Program, by the Native American Student Body, and by the Indigenous Faculty and Staff Alliance. And so in that book by Adrian Keene, you'll get to learn more about Aaron Yazi. Okay. And then, of course, the word Dine is the language of the people, but we were called Navajo by the actually Spanish settlers. Oh, That's really? A, yeah. And they also named the Owinge people, of which I'm the tribe of. Okay, Owinge. Owinge means the people, and they named us Pueblo people which is also a Spanish word because they made it to what is now New Mexico about 20, 30 years before the Plymouth Rock landing. They went south. We were this close to being a Spanish-speaking nation. They went south, and the northern European settlers went west and 
manifest destiny and all that kind of thing. So that's some history. And, you know, one of the worrisome things about history, speaking of that, there's a trend that some educators are pushing not to teach history before 1877. As a geographer, I collaborate with historians and social scientists quite a bit. Uh, social studies. And that was one of the things I was hearing at conference a couple years ago. They don't want anything taught before 1877. Okay, that wipes out the Civil War, wipes out the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Look at all the things that it wipes out, Mm -hmm. including the Land Grant Act, which was July of 1862, the same year as the Homestead Act. Uh, So yeah, there's just a lot of things you'd miss if you didn't study anything before 1877. Oh, and so then I was also going to say there are books that I would never recommend. Here's a book called The Indian in America's Past by Jack Forbes. It is the most insulting book, uh, one of the most. I mean, there are a lot of insulting books. And I think he's trying to tell a story. He is trying to say that the natives weren't treated very badly, but he goes on to call us Indians, which we're not. Remember, Christopher Columbus thought he was in India. But he keeps referring to the natives who married other people as half-breeds, you know, and just like some real derogatory language in there. But we have some really good books, A Reclaiming Diné History, and that's by Jennifer Nez Denadali, and it's very good. And then Willie Hensley, 50 Miles from Tomorrow, is about his life growing up in a Alaska Native uh, family and just some traditions around that, which is really good. You mentioned Joy Harjo. When the Light of the World Was Subdue, Our Songs Came Through. This book, it's an anthology that features Native authors and their poetry. And the poetry is just very heart-wrenching sometimes. Of course, it always shows how we saw beauty and God in everything. And so that's an important thing to know. I was doing a lecture one time and a lady came up and said, I thought you all were savages, or not savages, heathens. That wasn't a very nice thing to say, but no, we're not. <laughs> you know, that just, happened recently. Uh, no, it was four years ago. <laughs> that's 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 recent. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> uh, after an invited lecture, anyway. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but, but I would say, if you're going to read about indigenous people, read about indigenous people by indigenous authors. Mm-hmm. Because I like to say nothing about us without us. And certainly this book written by Mr. Forbes, and it was even entitled History. Oh, really? And, and okay. uh, it was a giveaway at the, you know, when the library gets rid of things. Mm-hmm. But I took it as a kind of to get it out of circulation, but <laughs> yes. to also talk about the kinds of books we don't want written about us mm-hmm. if, if they don't mm-hmm. even bother to ask us about our lives and who we are and not expect us all to be the same. Exactly. So someone asked me once, why didn't you all speak the same language? And I said, well, I'm in a room full of European ancestry or descendants. Tell me what language your ancestors spoke. Da, 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 da. So why aren't, didn't you all speak the same language? You know, they're just these illustrations you have to make because people don't think about those kinds of things. But again, writing and those books by the indigenous authors is really important. Then I start thinking about the nursery rhymes. John Brown had a little Indian, you know mm-hmm, that one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a little, little scary, but uh, yeah, we grew up singing those things and this just sounds wrong, but okay, I guess I better sing it. <laughs> was, was that something that happened a lot when you were growing up? When those 
nursery rhymes would come about. Did you think about that? That's a good question. Of course I did, in a sense, like, okay, that song specifically, mm-hmm. because it was just like, I remember that one. Getting rid of the Indian one, little two, little three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I shouldn't sing on your podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just as long as we don't have to sing on the podcast. Okay. Oh, okay. So, yes, I did think about that because, again, these were things that told me I was wrong. I was Mm -hmm. somehow deficient, wrong, or not, you know, just not right. That isn't, that's different. So it has to be bad. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, some of the songs and yeah, certainly illustrations too. I can imagine. Yeah. I just keep leaving you too speechless. You are <laughs> you are totally That's because you you're you've got so much wonderful things to say and we're and we're we're like kind of like gone over everything already. But I, I wanna go back to a book that I just picked up and judging a book by its cover and for each month we make book lists that we recommend for people to read of the different subjects. Because with the book discussions and stuff that we do, we don't want to just like have everybody have the same book. We want to learn from other people. Say, you know, what's a book that you read that you liked and tell us a little bit about it. And then, you you know, you learn more that way. And so a couple of the books that I'd read for this month, I read Spirit Run by Noe Alvarez and about the 6,000 mile peace and dignity run that goes from Alaska down to Central America, which was absolutely amazing. And I wow. learned so mm. much from that, you know, about the different indigenous peoples from that entire area, let alone the the runners who were doing that. But another one that, I, that I'm reading right now, and I haven't finished it yet, is There There by Tommy Orange. And I was just listening to a little podcast that he had done and was talking about why he wrote this book about 12 different indigenous working class people and kind of like what we'd been talking about, how we can see ourselves in little bits of different people. And that's how we have empathy and wanting to learn more about different people and different cultures is by seeing little bits of ourselves in there and by creating these 12 different stories of these people and how they're connected. And I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know how they're connected yet, but I'm very interested in it. You're connecting to something that I teach. So if I'm supposed to teach intercultural learning, I don't think you can start there. I think the most important thing to do is help the students with their own identities If I say, tell me about your identity, and I was just in a classroom, they don't know what that means. They especially don't know, and I'm thinking students from the dominant culture, especially don't know what culture means. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your culture, because I've had students say, I don't really have a culture, I'm just a normal American. So then I start talking about the practices, the beliefs, all the things that you get from your family when you still have an individualized story. But when you start experiencing more things, your story starts to be shared with other people and you adapt and adopt along the way. So your preferences change, all of these things. But just to get in touch with that as a young person, and the way I try to say it is if anything that you can say, I am. I am a reader, I'm a bike rider, I'm a, you know, all these I ams. I said, that is your identity, but your culture is all about your identity too. So your culture changes, uh, it's adapted, it's adopted. I'll use the illustration. I ate sushi for breakfast. I did not grow up 
eating sushi for breakfast. But that was a cultural significance that I was glad to adopt into my life. And I didn't have to give any, away anything to do that. I didn't have to give up any part of my identity to do that. And I think when we read books and if we can see ourselves a little bit in anything, it helps us to go, okay, let me live in that world for a minute to see what they were interacting with. And I, I really appreciate that about books and about study, about research, all of these things. You, you just kind of get that connection from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll try this question because I think we've... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You probably did not mean Do to... Do not be sorry. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> what role do books or stories play in bringing a community together or creating that community? Oh, if I can tell you my story and you can tell me your story, the lines that separate us fade. But when we bring our stories together and it becomes our story, our community story. So if you think of a community in, you know, I don't know how to think about it, but there's an overall story and that's kind of the ethos or the culture of the community. But how all of those other individual stories feed into that overall story. And I think that's something, and I always say, community cohesion happens when we know one another. And when we know one another, we understand. And we go, well, I would never say, oh, that's wrong. I want to know what's the story behind this and tell me more about that. And that's the other thing I I tell people. If you want to know something about me, ask me. Don't assume something. Just ask me. And you'll never die from that. It's just something you can do. Ask someone when you don't understand, because it's much better than making up a story like, oh, she must do that because of this or, you know, just ask. I think that's a very important aspect, especially, you know, uh, turbulent times have been around. And I think one of the things that makes Manhattan unique is that we have such a diverse culture and we have people from all over the world that a lot of other towns this size don't have. And in order to embrace that and in order to, I think, be more of a community, we need to get to know each other better Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what we wanted to do with this. Is I love it. Reading books about other cultures. I never would have picked up that Tommy Orange book. The Morrow Thieves. I don't think I would have chosen that one. Number one, it, it was a YA book. So I was like, oh, I, I'm not really in the mood for a young adult book. But then when I read it, it just completely changed everything. <laughs> I mean, I was just blown away by that book. If you think about reading and like when there were populations that didn't read and sometimes they were excluded from reading, think of the information that they didn't have access to. And in some ways, I think that's one of the gifts that we have to be able to read. Another one is our hearing. I study music of cultures and that music has helped me to learn other languages. That's helped me to connect it with the literature behind some of the things. For example, Francis James Child collected more than 350 ballads, and we call them the child ballads today. And you may not know that, but if you listen to Led Zeppelin, The Gallows Pole, mm-hmm. that was a child ballad. Oh, really? If you listen to Simon and Garfunkel, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? That was a child ballad. And it might say child in the number behind them. But he collected these ballads in Scotland and England. And then what he found is that those same ballads were being performed and sung 
in the Appalachian Mountains. Well, how did that happen? They were called broadsides. So if I wrote something that told you the news of the day, I would send someone out, much like King Alfonso did, send someone out to sing it, to tell the people that couldn't read about something. And that might have been a really awful thing, like John Lewis killing his pregnant mistress. But it's still sung today as an interesting song, but it gives us a glimpse into that history And those were made for people who couldn't read. I think that's another interesting part about reading, that we had other ways to transmit those news stories, that culture to our families and to other people in our communities. So it's all connected. You know, I, I love the thought of oral traditions and, and stories being told as a way to bring communities together before reading was widely available as well. Right. And we've talked before about how that increases the accessibility now mm-hmm. that we have audiobooks or even books in braille so you have people who aren't able to see anymore still have access to these stories and do you know we have something called audio reader and it comes out of KU and they'll read books or newspapers to people who are sight impaired and yeah we have ways to get that word out to people which i think is really cool so i hope libraries never go away because you will always have a role to play in the cohesion of a community absolutely and i have one question slightly unrelated okay what types of historical currencies did indigenous people use oh Good question. Well, one of the things to understand is that currencies might have been the product of my hunting. It might have been the product of my farming. So it was relationships and it was sharing. It was food. It was land. And of course, we never owned the land, but we used the land and we moved off that land before we overused it. So we never overused nature in any way. And we were adaptable, but all of that was more currency than folding dollars. And then, of course, in trade, it might have been beads. It might have been handiwork. And that trade was really important, too. Yeah, so those were currencies that I think we don't often understand. The whole reason I wrote that article for the Money Geek magazine, because they were blaming money management on why people were poor. And I go, well, that's not always the reason, especially if you're Mm -hmm. looking at an indigenous population. There were just things that we weren't allowed. We put on non-productive land or our food stores were actually raided. And like the Owinge people, what they call the Pueblo people in what is now New Mexico, the big part of currency was how many years of food storage did you have? That was considered a rich community. Mm. And you shared that food storage with people, but you always replenished it. And then your people didn't starve because I think that's one of the quickest ways that we can get rid of a people by taking away. Certainly we saw that in the plains with the killing of all the bisons. They thought that the indigenous people would die from there. But yeah, that was our currency. Of course, it's different now, but historically. (laughs) Thanks. Very interesting. Thank you. I do want to know a little bit more about your PBS thing. Oh, it's StoryCorps, which was on National Public Radio, and I facilitate conversations. It's called One Small Step, much like we're doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, It's kind of some guided questions, and we usually bring people together who may have differing political views, religious views, a lot of things, but we don't allow arguing, or it's about expanding your knowledge base rather than displacing your knowledge. We're not trying to replace it. We're just expanding it by putting two people together 
who will have a conversation. And, oh, we've done a great job and we found some great people to have conversations with. I love that. That is fabulous. I wanted to learn more about that. So, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for coming today. Glad to be here. It's great. Thanks for inviting me. If you'd like to learn more about Read MHK or sign up for the program, you can go to our website, mhklibrary.org. There you can find book suggestions based on each month's themes, log the books you've read for the month, and find information on upcoming programs. And if you'd like to contact us, send an email to refstaff at mhklibrary.org. Thanks for listening.